Welcome to episode 1227 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. It's a draft episode, sort of. We will be talking shortly to Dylan Higgins, our editor, and Kylie McDaniel, prospect coverer for Fangraphs. We'll be breaking down the first couple days of the draft and the big storylines kind of on a level that you and I, people like us who are not in the weeds with the draft, can understand and be intrigued by. But before we get to that, wanted to banter about a few things. First of all, recent Effectively Wild guest Johnny Venters is the latest quote-unquote opener. He is starting Wednesday's game for the Tampa Bay Rays, and his arm is still attached, still functional, and his stats are still impressive. He's been in 14 games now, 10 and a third innings, still has a sub-1 ERA. Not that that will continue, but he has a 72.4% ground ball rate, so somehow he has, I think, increased his record career ground ball rate, and he has... uh, gotten that elusive strikeout he hadn't gotten a strikeout when we talked to him but he has actually gotten six of them so things are still working out well for johnny venters and now he will be a starting pitcher for the first time in his career and we, uh, maybe that's an opportunity to have him back on the uh, uh <laughs> on the podcast i don't know how well the uh i haven't run the numbers to see how well the opener thing is actually working for the rays all i know is that they're doing it and that the dodgers have also now dabbled with it Mm-hmm. I know that the Rays just lost Anthony Bonda to Tommy John surgery, which means they are now down Bonda and Honeywell. The other one, De Leon. his name, De Leon, who I'm forgetting, Nathan Eovaldi, is back. He nearly threw a no-hitter in his first start, so at least there's something there. Also, I would like to give a shout-out Wilmer Font, who is now pitching for the Rays. He has appeared in four games for the Rays and only allowed one home run so far, <laughs> which uh, which for him is remarkable. His longest, yeah. uh, to this point, his he has appeared in 14 games. His longest streak without giving up a home run is two games. He did that to open the season, and he did that between his first and second Rays appearances. Now, granted, with the Rays, he also has three walks, two strikeouts. I don't know what Wilmer Font is going to do, but I'm just glad to see him doing something. This isn't about Johnny Ventures at all. <laughs> no. Well, I wanted to ask you about a couple things. One is the interleague record. We talk about this every year, really, about how the AL has dominated the NL for many consecutive seasons in interleague play. And That has not been the case this year, and there was a false alarm a few years ago where it looked like maybe the NL would finally snap the streak and win more interleague games, and then ultimately it did not. The AL overtook it, but off to a pretty promising start. So what are the numbers, and what do you think about whether this is real? Okay, so even last year, I I forgot what the streak is at, but it's something like 13 or 14 or 15 consecutive years where the American League has won more games. Last year, the AL won 100. 160 of 300 interleague games, that was a winning percentage of 533. So at present, the leagues have played 85 games, and the AL is 37 and 48. That's a winning percentage of 435. Now, Mm -hmm. there's a a bit of a caveat here, something I always like to look at, 
is the OPS split between the mm-hmm. leagues, just to see, you know, try, trying to see if things are supported by the underlying numbers. And uh, National League has hit for a 717 OPS. The American League has hit for a 711 OPS. So it's actually a very close split in terms of actual performance. And you'll notice that if you uh, if you look at the splits, by far in the American League, the teams who have played the most games interleague are the Twins and the White Sox. Not exactly the teams that you would want to represent you in interleague competition. Bring up the rear of the Yankees and the Mariners, who have been good. So my default suspicion for now is that the American League will win the majority of the games remaining, that the American League will continue to be the better league. But at least this time, it's a false start or a potential false start after two months as opposed to just one. It's uh, it's something. Mm-hmm. It's it's lasting. Yeah, 2003 was the last time that the NL won more games in interleague play. So this goes back a ways. And I think I had you and Dave Cameron on with me and Michael Bauman on an episode of the Ringer podcast to talk about the reasons for this a couple of years ago. But Just to summarize, I mean, part of it is the DH thing and the fact that the AL usually has a regular DH, although these days most teams don't and DHs don't really hit that well anymore. But that is part of it, the fact that the AL, when you play in an AL park, has an actual DH and the NL just has to sort of find one on the roster and on the bench somewhere. But it's not just that. It is the team quality and In the past, I think people speculated that maybe it's the Yankees and the Red Sox and they're sort of spending a lot and everyone in the AL has to keep up with them and also spend more. And now in the NL, you have the Yankees spending less. You have the Dodgers spending a lot. They're just as much a powerhouse as any team in the AL. So maybe the balance of power has actually swung a little bit. Maybe with certain teams that are in non-competitive parts of their cycles. Maybe there are more of those in the AL right now than the NL. I don't know. You could make that case. I mean, it's interesting because when you look at the Fangraphs war leaderboard, at least for the position players, it's very, very heavily stacked with American League players at the top of that list. And so many of the very best players are in the AL, but it does seem as if there is a chance at least that the NL is if not the better league, at least an equivalent league right now. Can you think of any other larger reasons why this would have changed after so long one way? No, not really. I just think about how the American League does seem to have so many of the uh, the bottom feeders, the teams that are maybe mm-hmm. just starting their rebuilds. But no, I'm, I, I'll think about this in more detail if the numbers actually hold up. But for now, we're we're not even a third of the way through the interleague schedule, so I'm just going to give the American League the benefit of the doubt for now. Mm-hmm. All right, and you wanted to say something about Immaculate Innings, and I know that Max Scherzer just recorded one this week, another one. He had one before. Max Scherzer has just been fantastic this year. He, of course, was already great, and now he seems to have reached a new level. And I know there's been some dinging of Scherzer over the last couple of years because he won Cy Young Awards, and I think there was a perception that Clayton Kershaw was probably still the best pitcher in the National League, and Scherzer just kind of lucked out in that Kershaw got hurt in those years. <laughs> but, you know, health is a skill and durability is a skill and Scherzer has had it. And beyond that, he's been a really good pitcher. It's not like he's been some lousy guy who just kind of stumbled into a Cy Young Award win or three at this point. He's been really good and a deserving winner in many years. And this year, he's just better than ever. I don't know whether you've looked into why, but he threw, what, 81 strikes in 91 pitches on Tuesday, which is a really impressive ratio. I believe that was the highest rate for a start 
starting pitcher this season. I don't know if that counts openers since, you know, starters are starters. But in any case, when you can throw that many strikes, that's overwhelming. You look at Max Scherzer right now. He's got a, he's looking at a strikeout rate of 39%. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, I did not look this up that loaded while I was looking at it. My God. Okay, so anyway, yeah. well, so Max Scherzer threw an immaculate inning against the Rays. Three immaculate innings ago also happened against the Rays. I don't know what that means. Three different players have been a part of one. Anyway, what I like about, so in, in the same way as throwing a perfect game, congratulations, you threw a perfect game, just like Phil Humber. So if you throw <laughs> one immaculate inning, that's great. It's a very impressive inning. It puts you in company with guys like Drew Storen. And Rick Porcello, whoever Jose Alvarado is, Mike Fires, Mike Fires threw an immaculate <laughs> inning. It shouldn't count when one of the opponents is a pitcher. Mike yeah, Fires I agree. got Kike Hernandez, Jock Peterson, and Carlos Friaz. Oh, I don't really care. But anyway, Rex Brothers has an immaculate inning. Justin Masterson, Steve Delabar, I remember that one. Juan Perez, don't know who that is. I think he was an outfielder, but he got Jason Hayward, Nate McLeod, and Wilkin Ramirez. Anyway, so good pitchers and bad pitchers alike have thrown immaculate innings. Max Scherzer has now thrown two immaculate innings. This is where it gets fun, because Scherzer, at least on record, he's just the fifth pitcher to record multiple immaculate innings in his career. I don't know how well these re- this is recorded going back before 1988, but anyway, only five on record. They are Max Scherzer, Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, Sandy Koufax, and Lefty Grove. Four Hall of Famers, probably a fifth. The difference yeah. between one immaculate inning and two is night and day. Max Scherzer... Just based on this alone, put him in the Hall of Fame. I don't care. It's over. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And it's funny also that you mentioned that uh, it shouldn't count if a pitcher is hitting because I'm actually writing about that right now. I mean, I'm sure we've both written about this before, but pitcher hitting is just, I mean, the bottom <laughs> is dropping out. Pitchers have never been good hitters, but it's just, it's getting to the point where it's embarrassing. I don't know why anyone wants to watch them try to do this. And it's funny, Max Scherzer pinch hit the other day in the 14th inning, and he actually singled and scored on a triple and came around and ran. And I think everyone was holding their breaths because no one wants Max Scherzer to get hurt, even if it means a win. But that's the exception that he would get a hit, that any pitcher would get a hit. I mean, at this point, the league-wide numbers for pitchers as we are speaking, pitchers have hit 115, 146, 148 this year. That is a negative 23 weighted runs created plus. That would be the worst of all time, surpassing last year, which was also the worst (laughs) of all time. Pitchers are just not designed, not selected to do this. I think it's silly that they still do. I think the fiction that pitchers have to be complete players and you have to have them bad as well is just silly at this point because they just haven't been at all conditioned to do this. There's a, a pitcher on the Giants, Andrew Suarez, who's a rookie. He's 25. And He has, of course, had to hit this year, although he has not literally hit. He has not had a hit in his 15 plate appearances. He struck out eight times. And he hasn't hit since eighth grade, essentially. Like, he didn't have to hit in high school. He didn't have to hit in college. He had to hit a little bit in the minors. And then he gets to the majors, and suddenly he has to face major league pitchers who are better than they've ever been. And it's just, it's nonsense that they still have to do this. And Obviously, they're not even getting that many plate appearances anymore because 
pitchers are getting removed from games earlier. They're getting pinch hit for. It's maybe partly because they're so bad at hitting, but also because teams just don't want them going deep into games. But we're at basically a record low for the percentage of plate appearances, even in the NL, that are going to pitchers anyway. So I don't know why we need to persist in making them do this. Like I browse through old newspaper articles. You can go back a century or more and find people talking and writing even then about how pitchers can't hit and they shouldn't have to hit. And there's discussion of something like the DH even in the late 19th century. So this is not at all a new idea. This is the oldest idea. So each new generation of writers and fans brings it up. Hey, pitchers can't hit. But it's always more true than it was before because they just get worse and worse and worse because everyone else gets better and pitchers are not working on this. It's like a good proxy maybe for the talent in the league, I guess, is just how much worse pitchers have gotten. They're like the control group, the canary in the coal mine. You can see the league getting better around them as they continue not to get better. So I just don't want to see them hit anymore. Credit to the Colorado Rockies who have allowed the highest OPS to opposing pitchers, 406. The Mets have controlled pitchers. Pitchers against the Mets have gone 9 for 119 with 64 strikeouts. I don't need to tell you what the rate stats are. They're bad. Yeah. So moving on from that, I wanted to throw out two numbers to you. So just out of curiosity, last year between May 6th and June 5th, so just covering basically a month, May 6th to June 5th, the uh, the rate of home runs per fly ball in the league, 14.1%. Mm-hmm. This year, so we are now through June 5th, this year of the same span of time, 12.7% down 1.4 uh-huh. percentage points. Don't know what it means, but could be something there. Home runs have not mm-hmm. returned like uh, they did last year. Early on, we blamed it on weather. I think we were correct to blame it on weather. Could still be a weather effect, but home runs, not going up. Not so far. Yeah, not really. It's kind of confusing. I've seen some chatter about that. It seems like it might be baseball-related because it's not guys hitting the ball less hard or at less optimal angles or anything. I think I saw some research from Alan Nathan or Tom Tango or someone else or all of the above saying that based on a model from previous seasons and the way that the ball has been hit this year, you would expect there to be more homers than there have been, which might mean that the ball just isn't carrying as much for some reason. No one really knows why it carries or doesn't carry, seemingly. And uh, in related news, maybe MLB has now become a part owner of Rawlings, the official manufacturer of the Major League Baseball. There was a sale of Rawlings, according to a report that MLB and a private equity firm called Seidler Equity Partners, which I think was started by one of the partners of the Padres, they have teamed up to purchase Rawlings for $395 million. Chris Marinek, the league's executive vice president for strategy, said something to the effect of, uh, we are particularly interested in providing even more input and direction on the production of the official ball of Major League Baseball, one of the most important on-field products to the play of our great game. I don't know whether this purchase had anything to do with the strange fluctuations in the ball in recent years and all the attention that's been paid to that, but probably part of it, right? I don't know. MLB's just kind of saying, well, we should probably just take this over and figure it out ourselves. So anyway, if the ball does anything wacky in future years, we will have no one to blame but Major League Baseball. And their own negligence. So let's see. (laughs) I've got three more things before we get to the interview. You have anything else? Well, pitchers have not contributed to the, uh, the home run spike in recent years. I will say pitchers this year have hit seven home runs in 1917 plate appearances. They have struck out 42.7% of the time. 
So pitchers have struck out this year more often than the typical hitter facing Max Scherzer by a a fairly wide margin. They have walked 3% of the time. I will just repeat my point. Pitchers are terrible at hitting, and I am, I think, going to officially come out as pro-DH. There's the strategy argument, I guess. We don't have to relitigate the whole thing right now, but there's the strategy argument about how in the NL you get more managerial decisions, I guess, whether to pull a guy for a pinch hitter, whether to pinch run. I don't know that they're interesting decisions. I mean, you get double switches. Like, often the best thing that a pitcher can do at the plate these days is sacrifice bunt, which is something that teams on the whole are not doing now. It's very frowned upon because it's not such a good strategy, but for pitchers it is because they're so terrible. It's something that is almost eradicated from the game now, except for this weird vestigial limb of baseball where pitchers have to continue hitting. I don't know. End of rant, I guess. I just made half of our listeners mad. Jose Urania currently 23 plate appearances, sporting a strikeout rate of 74%. Jose <laughs> Urania. So, <laughs> All right. uh, so let's see. Three more things real quick. Uh, so we've talked before about how players have, as part of the, the uniform player contract, you're not allowed to do certain things. Like, you probably shouldn't do jujitsu or, like, mm-hmm. ride ATVs in the offseason. You're at risk of having your contract voided. So we found out this morning that, at least in the past, Derek Dietrich has juggled chainsaws and machetes. So Derek Dietrich, Miami Marlins, juggler, mm-hmm. very talented juggler. I believe he does not juggle machetes anymore, but that will come back at the end of his playing career. Moving on. Ichiro Suzuki has moved up to throwing batting practice for the Seattle Mariners. He is a uh, not just in an advisory position anymore. He is throwing BP. Shortly after Ichiro threw BP, the Mariners clobbered the Astros 7-1. So if you believe in superstition, which all baseball players apparently do, Ichiro will never not throw batting practice again. And I guess as the last thought before we move on to our draft-related interview, Kylie McDaniel will talk about how he thinks that a good idea, at least for the draft broadcast and maybe for the draft league-wide, would be opening up the option of trading draft picks, which is, of course, Mm -hmm. something you can do in the other leagues. And it's a lot of fun, makes things a lot more complicated and strategic. And I was wondering, Kylie will also talk about how the Mariners this season drafted maybe by coincidence, but probably not. They drafted for proximity to the major leagues getting players Mm -hmm. who are more polished, closer to making an impact with the idea that those players become tradable assets pretty quick. Would the Mariners draft anyone, if you could trade draft picks, what do you think the odds are that Jerry Depoto would just trade every single one of his picks that he could (laughs) in order to turn them into players who are closer to the pros, if not in the majors already? (laughs) I mean, from a self-preservation standpoint, it might make sense, right? There's that moral hazard there because Jerry DePoto is probably not going to be the Mariners GM throughout a protracted rebuilding process, I would imagine. He's already been there for a while. I don't know whether he has the, the staying power to, to ride that out. So you could see how he would say, well, I might as well go for it because I have this team that is in the running somehow, surprisingly, still very much in contention. Might as well make the most of this chance because it's the last one I'm going to get. And you could make the case, I guess, that uh, it makes sense in a certain way for the Mariners as currently constructed. And also, you'd give Jerry DePoto any way to make more trades. He's going to make more trades. The uh, the current So after the Mariners beat the Astros on Tuesday, currently at Fangraphs, which does not think the Mariners are a very good team, their playoff odds, they're at 55%. 55% chance for them to end the longest standing playoff drought in the four major North American sports. So I don't know if it's going to happen. 
Uh, if you look at where they are on the Fangraphs playoff odds standings, they are actually still below the Astros. The Astros are given a 99% chance of making the playoffs because the Astros are <laughs> very, very good. Mariners, yeah. probably not. But nevertheless, here we go. We uh, The Mariners <laughs> officially now... If the Mariners do not make the playoffs, and there are 102 games left in the season for them, which is a Mm -hmm. lot, that's a lot of baseball, but if they do not make the playoffs this year, it will require them to have entered something of a significant slump, uh, unless someone like the Twins or the Angels just catches fire. So just Mm -hmm. something to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Dylan and Kylie to talk about the draft. All I wanted was a shot at the crown. Everybody try to beat you down I've been hanging on the ropes for 15 rounds Break your own back, break your own back, break your own back I don't want no part of that I don't want no part of that Alright, we are back and we are joined now by Kylie McDaniel I don't know what to call him or whether he has an official title, but he does lots of prospect coverage for Fangraphs. Hello, Kylie. Hello. Do I have to match your enthusiasm? Because I don't know if I can keep that up. (laughs) I don't know if I can either. We're talking about the drafts after all, but... Hello! (laughs) We are also joined by Dylan Higgins of editing assistants from Dylan Higgins fame. Dylan actually coming out from behind the editing board to take the mic. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Ben. How are we doing? Doing all right. So, Kylie, let's say just for the sake of discussion, purely a hypothetical here, that you were talking to someone right now who is not a voracious consumer of draft-related content, and that while that hypothetical person is happy that Fangrass readers get to enjoy the unparalleled insight and analysis that you and Eric Longenhagen provide, he personally has a hard time getting invested in the event because of its uncertain outcomes and the years that elapse between the draft and the typical successful draftees big league debut what would you tell such a person to get him or her excited so this is a the... <laughs> pure this is a purely hypothetical person we're talking yeah, about it absolutely okay. what would you say to such a person just to to get them psyched about what we saw over the last couple of days any big storylines teams that had make or break drafts or a lot at stake or really interesting players just what's the the most kind of general interest thing that happened here that is something that would compel people who are not hardcore draft followers. I mean, it sounds like you should be listening to Harold Reynolds' analysis of the draft, if you ask me. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, so yeah, I completely, I have learned from my family that they'll be like, oh, we're glad that you have a career writing online about baseball, like question mark, uh, <laughs> but I don't understand any, anything that you say on social media anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, no, I get it. It's it's a little in the weeds for some people. I would say, okay, so we're talking big storylines. I would say uh, the first thing would be, I mean, I'll give you the, like the, the one-liner of each of these. We can okay. dive into them as, as much as you feel like. Uh, the first one would be Casey Mize, who went number one overall, pitcher from Auburn that went to the Tigers. I guess the sort of prospect he is, he's not the traditional, like, checks all the boxes but hasn't quite realized his potential yet sort of pitcher. Like, I, I've been saying for the last couple of months, he pitches like a 27-year-old Japanese starter. <laughs> so that's one thing. Uh, he's, he's unusual in that way. And also, typically, a number one pick is, oh, he won't be up for three or four years. And so if a team won't be good for that long, then he like matches their timetable. He doesn't match the Tigers timetable. Like he might be in the big leagues next year and they're not going to be good next year, which is part of the reason why we were saying that it sounds like the Phillies were trying to get him at three because he matches their timetable. Like he could just 
slot in the rotation next to Jake Arrieta and might be better than him in a couple of years. So that'd be one buzzy thing. Another thing would be the Kansas City and Tampa where the two teams with a bunch of picks and a bunch of money and both are in, well, I guess Kansas City is in not a super competitive setting. And we thought they were going to take all high school players and they took all college pitchers. And we still haven't figured out why that happened. We have some theories that have not been substantiated yet. I'm saying we, Eric, he's not sitting in my pocket, but we'll compare notes often. (laughs) Uh, And then Tampa had some very interesting things that I also tweeted about recently about the players that they got and how they got them and how much money they're probably going to get. And then I guess the last interesting point for me, if we're talking about interesting players, would be Jordan Adams, who, you know, is a five-star wide receiver recruit for North Carolina in football, obviously. Well, I guess if you don't know what a wide receiver is, then you wouldn't know. Um, And his dad is the defensive line coach at North Carolina and he was seen as just a guy that you know puts on spikes and played at a couple events but just wasn't very good and then in late March at a really big event with like over 100 scouts there he was really good like kind of out of nowhere like he just needed like a couple of reps and we I guess scouts just didn't realize that he could explode and so he went from a guy that basically wouldn't have been had any real serious chance to play pro ball and was going to go play football and maybe dabble with baseball in college. And he just signed for, I believe it was $3.4 million, $3.5 million. So that was like a pretty abrupt change for a guy that if he would have played his whole life, might have gone 1-1, like could have been a sort of Royce Lewis, Byron Buxton type talent. He just hasn't really played that much. Okay, so uh, Ben asked you a hypothetical question. I'm going to ask you a theoretical question. So we, uh, you can, there's any number of cases in the major leagues. Take, I don't know, Jose Ramirez of prospects who just blow past their ceilings. And there are a lot of teams who say, well, you know, ceiling as a concept is kind of unfair. So anyway, fast forwarding this question. You have a draft and you have all these players who are so have really good skills, really high ceilings sometimes. But there is an undeniable element of unpredictability. So... Do you think it makes sense or have you observed teams drafting for proximity to the majors just on on the idea that, well, you know, if they're closer, then in in a sense that gives us greater odds of actually cashing this pick in? Yes. So there is there was a trend a little while back, I don't know, like 10, 12 years ago of taking college relievers in the first round because you could just run them straight to the big leagues. And I think teams realized that was a bad idea in like the Ryan Wagner, Chad Cordero days, because essentially if you're relief only and sort of a finished product in college, there's probably something missing in terms of like finesse and there's probably more injury risk and, you know, things like that. Like it wasn't as good, as easy as it seemed. And so then that didn't happen for a while. And now that appears to be happening a little more to the point where there's now high school pitchers that project as relievers being taken in like the first two rounds has happened the last couple of years, a couple times. There's also probably wouldn't shock you to know the teams, but like Seattle was perceived as looking for only close to the big leagues college players. And the sort of explanation I got from a non-Mariners person was Jerry wants assets that he can trade or that could potentially get there quickly. And I'm looking at their list. They took, yes, literally all college players the first 10 rounds. So I know they were considering some high school players, but they, they did that. I had heard similar things with some other teams that I don't think had quite as strong as what sounded like a pre-draft preference. Uh, like the Red Sox took two high school players and then took the reliever in the third round, Durbin Feltman from TCU that may be quickest at the big leagues. And Cleveland is another one that's similar where they'll take some high school players and they took Nick Sandlin, who's a sidearm reliever with like maybe the best numbers in the draft. That'll probably be like a seventh or eighth inning guy, maybe even this summer. So there's definitely some teams that like are in, more interested in that sort of player than other teams. It is not super common for a team to sort of exclusively look at those sorts of players, but obviously it seems like Seattle has 
has has become that team. Kylie, I wanted to ask about Anthony Sigler, who I felt like was maybe the most effectively wild player in the draft, or at least early yeah, on. Yeah, if I'm trying to guess who you guys would like the most, you probably like him more than Adams now that I think about it. Yeah, he's a, a switch pitcher and switch hitter as a catcher, the Yankees first rounder. Uh, basically, is that a thing? Is this going to be a thing? What's up with Anthony Sigler? So there was a rumor before the draft that the Rays were going to take him at the 16th pick and were going to let him pitch, hit, and play third base. Yes, and, <laughs> and switch catch. <laughs> Left-handed catcher, right-handed catcher. Give well, me all of it. And the funny thing is they already have, obviously, Brendan McKay, who's doing both. And then they drafted Tanner Dodson from California yeah. to d- and announced him as both. So obviously they... They think that, you know, they're one of a couple teams that would even consider doing this. And now they seem to be proactively doing it. So that, mm-hmm. yeah, it was for real that he, I, you could see him being good enough. Like he's like high 80s, low 90s from the right side because he has like a 65 arm on the 2080 scale as a catcher. Left side, it's a little more, it's, it's sort of Pat Venditti-ish. Like it's sort of lower slot, doesn't throw quite as hard. Like it's sort of, you know, relying on deception more than stuff which I can't imagine that there'd be a guy that throws 90 from both sides. So you, you kind of have to realize that one of them will be a little less than the other. And some teams have talked about that, like don't like the risk of like, you know, sort of concussions and, you know, wear and tear with high school catchers and putting him at third base or maybe even second base. Cause he's actually a pretty good runner. He's, he's got some of that sort of Dodgers catcher, like Austin Barnes, Kyle Farmer, like all the guys that could play the infield. Uh, they have a couple in the minors as well. So he actually is that good in that he is super advanced as a catcher. He's probably big league ready as like a catcher within a year. Maybe he's got a huge arm. He's actually a pretty good runner. Uh, he doesn't have huge power, but he already knows how to tap into it in the games. He has good field to hit. He basically took the starting job from a much more tooled up catcher on Team USA last summer. It's just like the scouty scouts out there like love this guy. And because he was 19 on draft day, if you go back to Randy Gisirli's, um study, that that and the risk of being a catcher kind of pushed him down some. But in terms of like talent, yeah, he, he is he is all of those things. It is not like he throws 70 from both sides and isn't really a pitcher or isn't really that good of a catcher or is just sort of an oddity. Like he's a real prospect that also does really interesting stuff. I was going to ask whether in the wake of Otani and McKay, whether there was any indication that there might be more teams willing to give guys a shot as two-way players before kind of, you know, limiting them to only one job. Is it too soon to say or were there a few of those guys uh it seems like tampa is not scared of it i i'm not remembering the name but there was someone else that was announced as pitcher and hitter and i'm, I'm looking at the mlb draft tracker which they only have room for one position so i'm not able to find that uh there was a little talk that hunter green may hit some which i guess he hit a little bit but i think he's now stopped doing that so it definitely seems like it's not something that's happening in a wide sense like there's a lot of players like tristan cassis who went in the first round a high school player to the red sox is like 89 to 92 on the mound but isn't really a pro prospect. So like if, if teams are really aggressive about it, they'd be throwing those guys on the mound and trying to figure out like, oh, this guy that could be a first baseman for us in three years can also come in and pitch an inning and throw around 90. But there's, you know, we've seen guys come in as like emergency pitchers that can throw 90. Like that is on its own, isn't like super novel. So I, I don't think it's becoming more of a thing, but I think more forward thinking teams like Tampa and I want to say it's the Angels. Oh, the Angels did announce a guy, William English, a high school player as both hitter and pitcher, but that one was more because he said he wants to hit, but he's better as a pitcher, so they're going to kind of humor him like the Red Sox did with Casey Kelly. But yeah, I think I think the the Rays have like a very specific kind of player they've been drafting, which is like hit first, second baseman that could 
like if you're shifting a lot, you could fake them at shortstop. They have like 10 of them in their system and they drafted two of them in the first three rounds this year. So I think they have a much more specific idea of the kinds of players they would like and the kind of versatility um, and skill set they like. And they obviously are not afraid of developing guys both ways to where it's more than just a replacement level player the other way. If you can get them to be a little better than replacement level, then that helps you with your flexibility. And obviously starting Sergio Romo also shows that... Um, flexibility in in the way that you sort of build a team and deploy your your assets this has been a weird kind of trend because i remember there was a year a few years ago where it seemed like the a's entire major league roster was no glove second baseman it's kind of weird i guess it's maybe a small market well joey wendell was on both of those teams (laughs) and daniel robertson so i don't know any of the names because i am an imbecile but i know that when i was watching some draft trackers there there was a guy who had like the the highest spin curveball that was ever tracked by trackman there was a there was of course talk about these number of guys have the highest exit velocity. So obviously people have been scouting with some amount of information for years, radar guns and whatnot, but clearly more players are being exposed now to trackman technology when they are amateurs. So in your own experience, what kind of difference has that made? Like can you think of a player whose stock has whose has risen significantly or has dropped significantly because of how they were perceived by like uh, the trackman software? Yes, that is. I, I can't think of a specific guy that like went up a lot because of that. Because like you're, the guy you're talking about is Carter Stewart, a uh, Florida, actually about an hour away from me, Florida high school pitcher that the um, Braves took eighth overall. He has the, I guess it would be off the charts. Like I'm, I hesitate to call things off the charts when, but I think he's literally the best. I think he had like a curveball up to like 34 or 3500 RPMs like almost a year ago. Obviously, he wasn't really on TrackMan this year because he's just at a high school field. But his curveball graded out as like a 65 or 70 for scouts. And so a TrackMan may tell you, ah, there's actually a chance it might be an 80. I don't think that really changed his stock that much. But when you get into the room and you have scouts throwing around numbers and then a GM that isn't a scouting director in the past is sitting there listening to them, he would like some certainty to know that what they're saying has some rubber meets the road, especially with high school players. Cause obviously with college players, you can say, well, this guy was at, you know, like Durbin Feltman at TCU, who I just mentioned, he's like up to a hundred with like a plus slider. And I think he had like 40 strikeouts and seven walks or something like that this year in like 25 innings. It was like, okay, we know that that plays at some level against a bunch of different pro level hitters and some almost pro level hitters. Whereas with high school players, especially if they change since the summer showcases, you just see them against high school hitters throwing however hard they throw, but with like metal bats, some some of these guys don't face any Division One talent the entire spring. So you'd like to have some certainty. And so saying that this guy has a spin rate uh, higher than Seth Lugo's curveball, and also the scouts really like it, and it performed well over the summer, and it performed well this spring, that gives you like a little more certainty. And the same thing with the exit velos, like Jordan Adams, who I mentioned earlier. We didn't really have very much info on him, and I don't think there was even track man on him from because it's only at some of the events over the summer. He hit some balls like 105 when he was off balance at an event where there was track man stuff, the big event where he like popped up in March. And so now you can, you know, bring him into a pre-draft workout in a stadium and have him, you know, hit one up in the stands. And you would have track man from that if you do it at your big league stadium, but you would also know basically to pick him out of a group to investigate more with that data than you would have otherwise and if you're telling your gm hey we just saw a guy who's a guy now they might think a gm that is not a scouting director may think you're getting too excited about a player seeing him once and putting him too high but when you say he hit a ball 108 when he was off balance they're like oh okay that's a thing i can wrap my arms around and i think that's it sort of helps the internal calculus i wanted to ask you about kyler murray which i understand is one of the craziest picks of the first round and i guess one how much should this screw up your own mock and two uh, are, are the A's crazy? Is this a pretty good prospect here? What's what's going on exactly with Kyler Murray in terms of 
you know, playing at Oklahoma and then trying to, what it sounds like, eventually pick baseball, but also flirt with football for a bit, too. Yeah, definitely messed up our mock. We were actually, (laughs) when he got drafted, people were asking us, hey, they're mentioning on the broadcast he might go. And I think we set the odds at him getting taken on the first day at like 15% minutes before he was selected. So, you know, that wasn't a great look for us. Um, But I I saw him play, uh, Oklahoma played at UCF, which is, you know, like a half hour from my house, and went all three days and talked to different scouts were there every day. And I was like, is this guy signing? And there was like a GM there. There were like some real high-level guys that would know. And they were like, no, there's another guy on this team, Steel Walker, who went in the second round. And uh, and they had a couple guys that went in the fourth or fifth round. And they were playing UCF, who had a couple guys that went on the second day. They're like, no, like we lucked out that like Steel Walker's on this team. So like we get to watch this guy without like wasting a day. But this guy's not going to sign. He's been playing his entire life trying to become a big-time quarterback. Like He was the number one quarterback recruit in, in, the, in the country three years ago. Pulled his name out of the draft out of high school because he didn't want anybody taking him because he wanted to play football. And he's like a little dude that's fast. Like it's a little more of a Russell Wilson. Like you'll have to kind of thread the needle and be really good. But he's going to take over where the Heisman Trophy winner was Baker Mayfield at Oklahoma. And he's basically been waiting his entire life. He's now 21 to play on the big stage in college. And he's now going to get to do it this year. And so everyone thought, oh, he's not going to sign because he would have to be giving away his football future. He'd get to play one year and then would have to basically quit football. And that's basically what it sounds like he's doing is it's not completely done that he will be the starter this year, but it sounds like he will be. And he's basically, I think, saying that if he steps in, wins a Heisman Trophy and is like a fourth round pick, he just won't play pro football, which I still find hard to believe that that's what he's going to do when his whole life has been going toward this. And he saw baseball as, you know, seemingly a backup plan, but getting offered probably close to five million dollars to play would seem to be more than you'd get as a fourth round pick that may never get to start and would have to, you know, get a bunch of concussions, not guaranteed contract stuff like that. And the short version of him as a player is he's actually we had him ranked back to back with Jordan Adams because they both have limited reps, they're football guys, and they have huge tools. He's a seventy runner that can play center field, probably above average. He's got above average power, and he hit more than people thought he would this year. But he had trouble with good breaking stuff because he essentially has never seen it before. So he's early enough on that he could learn to. Hit good breaking stuff but he also may never figure that out and so if he played his whole life and figured that stuff out he would have gone somewhere from like five to ten so oakland's basically assuming he will continue on this trajectory if he performed this way having played his entire life he'd be more of like a late first rounder which is about where we had him as like a little bit of a hedge so he's definitely a real prospect it sounds like he will be playing baseball but it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts sort of with the hit ability because that'll kind of dictate what his career will be And do you think that the choice, you know, baseball over football or whatever it ends up being, I mean, it's not quite a draft question, but does this have to do with CTE stuff and risk stuff or, you know, is is baseball the safer option, maybe even the more lucrative option? Is this come into play a lot? I mean, there's been multiple players that have spoken about this, like Jeff Samarja turned down. Um, I think it was like top three round NFL money to play baseball. And I think he's now made a hundred million dollars, which all but like Pro Bowl quarterbacks make that kind of money in football. And he was a receiver, so he wasn't going to get that much money. And I believe Antoine Randall, who played his whole career in football and in the NFL and had, I think, multiple concussions that he made the wrong call. He should have played baseball. So there's like enough sort of circumstantial evidence from people that have like been through this discussion that you should do it. But again, like growing up in Texas as the best quarterback in the state and being told that you're going to win a Heisman Trophy, like yeah. it would be hard for me if I'm that kid to walk away from that. 
So that's why I'm like still a little bit dubious that that's exactly what will happen. But that that's he hasn't talked a lot, so we don't know if he's like concerned about CTE. I will say he has some connections. We'll say without being specific to the people that advised Josh Bell. And Josh Bell was a guy that the pirate obviously is a big with the Pirates now. He was taken out of high school. Everyone was convinced he was not going to sign, and I found out later that he basically had decided he was going to sign and just didn't tell anybody to see how much money he could get. And so that could be what's going on here, that Murray had decided he was done with football and just didn't want to tell anybody and is going to see how much money he could get, which it turns out for both of them will be about $5 million. So if that's how it plays out, then it turns out, you know, those advisors are very good. So you mentioned that Casey Mize, the top pick, is pretty polished, probably won't take him too long to get to the majors. So is he kind of the number one guy who might make an impact fairly quickly? Or is there like a Chris Sale 2010 type who might be up even down the stretch making some kind of contribution this year? Mize is definitely the guy that will, I guess if you say make an impact, so more than just sort of like a bit player. Because there's definitely some Mm -hmm. guys in the third, fourth, fifth round, especially relievers that may get there quickly and be useful. But, you know, for all we know, could be on waivers in three years. Mize is the sort of quickest to the majors impact guy. Because I think you could throw him in a big league bullpen right now and he would get guys out because he essentially has three plus pitches and plus control so it you know he he just sort of dominated the sec at a level that hasn't really been done recently Mm -hmm. there are some concerns about his sort of durability uh will his stuff back up some there's been some health questions all that stuff got cleared medically but i don't think he's a guy that's going to improve any so that's what i'm saying the 27 year old japanese guy he also throws splitters and cutters uh more than his fastball so I, I think that will probably, you know, eat into his uh, projection as well. A couple other guys that from the hitting side that won't get there quite as fast, but are sort of the quickest moving hitters. I think uh, Joey Bart, the second pick, a catcher from Georgia Tech will be one. He has a lot of similarities to Dansby Swanson in that it is great makeup, great defense, uh, has big tools, may take a, a little bit of time to hit, but he's so valuable that he may be one of those guys that gets brought to the big leagues before he's ready and sort of learns how to tap into his hitting skills in the big leagues, especially because it sounds like he'll be learning a lot from Buster Posey since he seems to be the heir apparent to the sort of catcher first base thrown there. And the other one would be Nick Madrigal, who went fourth to the White Sox, who we had at Fangraphs as the second best player in the draft, who we said a year ago was a poor man's Ozzy Albies, which now appears to be a different thing than we thought even a poor man's Ozzy Albies could be because he didn't really have power a year ago. Yeah. But he is a 5'7 college second baseman, is a 70 runner with 70 back control, and is just like a dynamic guy. And we think he has sort of the athleticism and back control to take his, say, eight home run level raw power to maybe as high as 15 homers if he sort of uh, does the things that some of these, you know, Altuve, Albies, all, uh, Petroia, all these little guys have done to tap into power, maybe even more raw power than they had. We think he has sort of the um, secondary skills and, you know, athleticism, back control, these sorts of things mm-hmm. to possibly do that while being like an above average second baseman that can fill in it short, that could steal 30 bases, like all that kind of stuff. And because he's sort of 5'7", these sorts of guys tend to peak quickly um, just because there's not a lot of like, you know, physical, you know, growing pains and whatnot. So there's a, there's an important question we haven't asked yet, but it's time. So as we're talking about this, it's Wednesday. Wednesday is the day when the majority of players are drafted. It's uh, every, what is it, 11 through 40 rounds on Wednesday, something like yes. that. Yes. And so Monday was the big day, all the big names, Tuesday, other good players, Wednesday, lots of players getting drafted. So things are going to change between when we're recording this, which is pre-Wednesday draft and when this is published, which is post-Wednesday draft. But how surprised are you that through at least the first two days, Luke Heimlich has not been drafted by a team? I'm surprised. We've had probably 10 teams tell us we will not draft him. We didn't publish any of that just because that doesn't seem like that's really newsworthy that a team wouldn't draft him because it sounds like almost all of the teams aren't going to draft him. 
Uh, but we've heard from no one's confirmed to us that he is on their board and that they would, you know, likely draft him. But it sounds like there are anywhere from two to five teams that will do that or that will at least consider it and have him on the board. The financial benefit of taking him would have been to take him Tuesday, which obviously didn't happen because uh, the idea would be he's a senior. He has no negotiating leverage. Obviously, there's above and beyond even more than just a senior, no negotiating leverage. So if you take him in, say, the fifth round for $20,000 when the slot is 200 something thousand, you can then bank 180000 and then after the 10th round, you can spend 125000 for free. It doesn't count against your pool, but then that money you saved at that pick by taking Heimlich can then be given to another player, whereas if you sign Heimlich in the 11th round, it's you can spend up to one twenty-five for free, you gave him 20 or whatever the number is, and you been, you get no benefit from that. So it almost wouldn't make sense for somebody to take him today because you would have gotten a benefit from taking him on Tuesday. If you take him on Wednesday, you're basically just like signing him as a free agent for $20,000. is essentially what's happening. And it would be, I want to say like cowardly, but it would be a real cop out to not take him in the top 10 rounds and give away that financial benefit and then take him in the 38th round and sign him because you think at the 38th round will you'll get you know less blowback from the media because it's the 38th round, not the fifth when I don't think anyone actually cares. Because everyone knows he's a second-round talent. So where you take him behind the second round, there's obviously some level of discount. So we, we had enough people tell us he's going to get drafted that I think he will. It's also possible that somebody tries to sign him as a free agent later, like when the everything's passed and you actually have until the signing deadline to sign him, which is, uh, I guess, in early July. But at this point, it, it did not go the way that we thought it would. So I don't know how to sort of handicap how this will go. Do you have a favorite name in the draft who has selected already other than, I guess, Lars Newtbar, younger brother of Nigel Newtbar? Is there anyone with a better case than that? That is, Yeah, that is a, that was the one I thought of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think in the first 30 picks, Travis Swaggerty is probably the best one. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's a pretty solid one. And then in the fifth round, I believe, let me check this, San Diego took Duanya Williams Sutton, which again, not as good as, huh. as those, but... I don't know. It kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit. There are some interesting names that will go later, but I wouldn't say <laughs> that there are top prospect names that are better than the ones we've talked about. Although there is, you guys keep talking. There's one that I remember that I want to make sure I say it right. So I'm looking it up. The right Tigers now. took Brock Deathridge. That's the one who, I was looking up. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm guessing it's Deathridge, but it looks like Death Rage, which uh, I'm sure it's not, but I hope it is. Yep. And he was a senior. And the one other senior on the Wichita State team that um, had a couple high picks is Gunnar Troutwine. And he's like, uh, looks like he's in Mumford and Sons. So. <laughs> Uh-huh. So those two things together, I think, make that one pretty good. Uh-huh. There's a death rage on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> the Astros took Seth Beer, which I feel like will be a popular jersey, whether he makes the majors or not. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know some teams uh, or some fans were mad that he wasn't either on the Brewers or didn't join Jake Berger on uh, the White Sox. Sure. Uh-huh. There was a low-level controversy about an old, dumb tweet that was tweeted by the Rockies' first-round pick, Ryan Rawlison, and uh, it was about Obama. It was something that Rawlison tweeted when he was like 14 years old, back when Obama was reelected, and it was, of course, turned up almost immediately, and Rawlison said it was stupid, and he regrets it, and he deleted it, and these things kind of come to light in every draft now, it seems like, not just in baseball, in just about every sport. And I know that teams look at this sort of stuff before they draft a guy just to see if there are any red flags there. The Rockies said they did with Rollison. I guess they can't 
tip off the guy, hey, we're drafting you. You might want to delete this tweet before everyone finds it because they might not want to say that they're drafting the guy. But you'd think that advisors, at least for the potential draftee, would say, hey, do you have any dumb, terrible tweets that you should delete before you suddenly become a national figure for the first time? Are you aware of how deep teams go into researching the stuff that people tweeted when they were at an age when their brains were not close to fully formed yet? Again, we'll say I know a group that advised Ryan Rollison on some um, professional endeavors. Mm-hmm. And it, it like these guys know what they're doing. So I would imagine they just didn't go that far back. I mean, if I'm just thinking I'm going to go through like a client's tweets, I feel like once I go to two or three years, that's probably good. <laughs> but there actually was another player. So we referenced on Fangraphs that... Travis Swaggerty from South Alabama was sliding because people thought he was going to go in the top five and it sounds he obviously went 10th. It sounded like he was going to go a little lower. He had a what sounds like similar tweet from, I believe, when he was 14 or 15 as well. And some people found it, some teams, I believe a team advised him to get rid of it. And he was in the middle of switching advisors when this happened. And I know of at least one team that we have reason to believe did not draft him because of that and some other sort of maturity things, even though after sort of poking around, we didn't believe any of these sort of maturity concerns. Like we know all the different issues that sort of cropped up. None of them sound like long-term concerns. It just sounds like, yeah, if you went from being essentially an anonymous teenager that played baseball to a guy that might get $5 million in the course of a couple months, like you might do a couple erratic things too. The other thing would be if I told you that a teenager in Mississippi when he was 14 and Obama was elected said something like this in front of 10 people, you mm-hmm. like would not be surprised at all. And it probably mm-hmm. wouldn't even really change your opinion of him as a person. At least for me, it probably wouldn't because mm-hmm. um, You'd have to know, well, does he feel like that now? Like, you know, that kind of thing. But because it's on Twitter, it becomes like a thing where it's like, oh, like now we know he did it. Like like the Ray Rice thing, I don't think was handled correctly. But then there was a video and suddenly it became real to a lot of people who didn't take it seriously. So I think the idea of it being sort of immortalized makes it more of an issue than it should be. It makes it easier to point to something than just, oh, someone said he said this. Oh, eight people said he said this. So now it's really bad. It's just not, I don't know, I did a bunch of dumb stuff when I was 13 or 14, and we just didn't have social media then. Sure, you still do, and you do have social media. Yeah, and I had it in college, and there's probably still some stuff I'd, I'd rather I didn't do then. <laughs> but um, And also, there's you know there are things that have sort of changed over time. And so I don't feel like it's that big of a deal. We know it happened to at least two guys in the first round of this year's draft, so I'm sure it happened with other guys. I've heard it with other players that slide in the draft in past years. Like, hey, he tweeted some pretty iffy stuff like a year before he got drafted, before he knew he was being watched. So it's definitely been a thing going back a few years too. And we know Seth Romero last year slid all the way down to the Astros at the end of the first round because of stuff that he put on Snapchat that included like a bong and stuff like that. So there's something that makes sense to me theoretically, but that's tremendously difficult to study. So I'm just going to switch the, flip the burden over to you. Do you think that over the course of the past few decades and up to the present day, teams are getting better at this? That actually is on my list of things to do, is do a quick little study and just see are more of the high war players being picked at higher picks? Like, is the efficiency increasing? Because I know from when I was with the team, I did a study like that. And I know in the international market, it was very clear that that was happening for reasons that are obvious. Like, obviously, all 30 teams are down there. They go from having one scout to having 15. They're not having organized games. There's, like, coverage of the market so people know what the consensus is. Like, there's obvious, like, sort of reasons for that to improve. The draft is more subtle things. There was, I know Baseball America did something where they showed that over the last 10 years, high school righties essentially have not been taken in the correct order, but then 10 years before that, that they were taken in the correct order, implying that because of the showcase circuit, that they're being drafted off of velocity only. 
and not the things that are actually predictive of success. And I think there's been a little bit of a correction there just in sort of watching the process. But I would say, I mean, we've had this showcase circuit going for, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 years now. So I would imagine whatever efficiency that introduced into the system, which I'm, I'm certain it did, uh, we may be getting close to the diminishing returns. Uh, I think the introduction of the, the TrackMan stuff a couple years ago, I think now that is being used at some level by essentially every team. So that may be sort of the last frontier for that sort of thing. I know some teams are doing more advanced stuff with like sports science and like bringing guys in for workouts. I talked to one, <laughs> I talked to one advisor who had a high school pitcher as a client who went to a workout at a big league stadium, but he wasn't going to pitch. And he said the big league pitching coach started massaging his arm and like didn't <laughs> ask, just like started touching his arm. And I'm like... Does that really tell you if a kid's arm is going to stay healthy just by touching it? Like the, I don't know, but I think that sort of stuff is more what we're talking about. Like I know some some teams had talked to me about like, oh, we like this guy because his bone structure in like an objective way suggests that he will put on weight, which suggests he'll put on velocity. And our biomechanical stuff, you know, said that like he has a lower risk of getting injured. But like every team does that, whether it's with their eyes or you know whatever. It's just you can ca- you know calibrate it more it's a precise way. But that stuff is also isn't like crazy predictive because or else everybody would be doing it. So there's like little edges like that, but I would guess that the like we're getting close to a level of efficiency that it's going to be hard to improve upon in like a real way. So we know that you have to go talk to the people of Fangrass. Les thought there was a tweet about the ratings for the draft. MLB Network got a 0.3 overnight rating, which sounds not great, but was the best rating yet for this event and for that network. So what do you think needs to be done? I know you offered a, a couple of thoughts on Twitter that you won't have to delete six years from now, but I don't know. Do maybe that content will be seen as offensive six years from now. <laughs> it could be. What do you think? Is there uh obviously we know about kind of the handicaps here and the reasons why the MLB draft is probably not going to be the equivalent of the NFL or NBA drafts, but what do you think can or should be done to amp this up a little more? I think the big thing would be allowing the trading of picks because like there are people that like follow me, which I know is like a a special subset of weirdos and probably the people listening to this, but I don't know, you know, quite specifically if that's the case um, that said, yeah, my team picked it, you know, two and 45 and I just turned it off between those two picks because like what could Mm -hmm. possibly happen that I care about? Maybe I'll watch five picks before and just see who's on the board so I know who to root for or whatever. But if you can trade picks, I mean, you could essentially have big leaguers, minor leaguers, uh, cash, whatever, and then obviously picks trading hands. And so anyone can get picked anywhere. That also introduces like the the need for analysis on the spot about who these prospects are that, you know, possibly a guy in double A gets traded for a high school kid or a big leaguer or cash or whatever. So then that introduces the idea of, oh, if you're a Yankee fan and you think whoever we draft at 22 isn't going to be relevant for three years, well, what if they're trading Clint Frazier for the number two overall pick? Like you're, you're then going to want to know like some guy who normally would never watch this. And then also I think I think Fangraph specifically puts us on a spot where it's like, oh, who's going to be able to value the draft picks correctly? Who's going to be able to have a sortable board with all of the players that could possibly be traded? And who's going to have the guy that can break down uh, the trade from a big league perspective if that's included? It might be Jeff Sullivan, who knows? Uniquely qualifies us to be able to sort of step in and be even more important than I think we have been. But I think it also would make it more interesting to casual fans. And I think for 
people that are the you know crazy draft heads would probably like their brains would explode if you told them or every top 10 round pick or whatever is tradable and there's a bunch yeah. of little stuff you can do like maybe having the dais not be full of analysts who have never been to a high school or college game before it would seem like <laughs> maybe we should have guys that do this for a living doing most of the talking like i think they went to 15 different analysts for opinions and two of them actually do this for a living it was like ah maybe we should get that percentage a little bit higher i'm not saying Certain people shouldn't be on there or shouldn't be able to talk like everyone has like a different role. But it's like maybe we should skew toward three of the four people that are sitting at that table have some idea what they're talking about. You want to get your ratings up? Get Kylie with the microphone on that set. (laughs) That's not where I was going with this, but I'm not going to argue with you. (laughs) All right. You have to go. Want to give us like a three word favorite draft by a team, favorite pick, least favorite, any superlative snap judgments like that as silly and imprecise as it is to pass judgment on anything right? after draft day i haven't gone through all the teams but none of them jumped out as being specifically amazing i will say keep an eye on uh indian second rounder nick sandlin uh the sidearm guy from southern mississippi if they uh him and then durbin feltman who the red sox took in the third round if they want to put them in the big leagues this summer along with casey mize the number one overall pick and possibly brady singer who went 18th overall to the royals from florida I would say those would be the guys to watch. And then I think Nick Madrigal is the bat to watch that could be, you know, top 10 on a top 100 list sitting in AAA like a year from now. Insert joke about how he's small here. I don't know (laughs) what the joke is, but he's small. Everyone will like him because he's small and he's good. He fits in the overhead bend. So that makes it convenient (laughs) for teams that need to travel. There it is. All right. You can follow Kylie on Twitter at KylieMCD. You can read the big board at Fangraphs. You can read his chats. You can go back and laugh at his mock draft, which lasted. I think uh, to the fourth pick, which is uh, probably about as long as the median. Our, our second to last lasts. mock was actually better than our last one, which we're going oh, to have to review okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kylie. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Dylan. Enjoy editing yourself for once. <laughs> oh, yeah. It'll be good. Thanks for having me. All right, that will do it for today. And boy, that banter about Johnny Venters and the Rays opener plan did not age well. Venters lasted one third of an inning, walked two, allowed three hits, and five runs. I did say that low ERA was not going to last. I thought it would last a little longer than it did, though. It's up to 5.06 now. Sorry to jinx you, Johnny. Also, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention another couple names drafted on Wednesday. The Mariners selected second baseman Cash Gladfelter in the 27th round. Not bad. And of course, the Texas Rangers in the 32nd round took Owen Schartz. And I'm not going to make any jokes about Owen Schartz because Twitter made them all already. Luke Heimlich was not drafted, but I would encourage everyone to go to Baseball Prospectus and read the article by longtime Effectively Wild listener Beth Davies-Stafka. It's about the Luke Heimlich situation, but also about Beth's own experience being the victim of childhood sexual abuse. It is a very powerful piece that I'm sure it took a lot of courage to write, and I'm glad that she did. So I will link to it on the show page at Fangrass and in the Facebook group. Please do go check it out. And thank you to Beth for writing it. While I'm recommending articles, I'll give you one more. Also, after we spoke on Wednesday... There's an article published at The Athletic called How One Tiny Change to the Baseball May Have Led to Both the Home Run Surge and the Rise in Pitcher Blisters. This one is by Dr. Meredith Wills, who used to be an astrophysicist and is now a sports data scientist. And sometime last year, Meredith contacted me and she knew that I had commissioned some tests on a bunch of baseballs a while back. And she asked if I still had those baseballs. 
baseballs. And I did. They were just lying around. So I sent those baseballs to her, and she subjected them to yet more tests. I had had them fired out of a cannon at a flat surface at a high speed. She completely dissected them. And she found that in terms of construction, the most notable difference between the new baseballs and the old baseballs is that the laces that are used to stitch the seams on the new baseballs are about 9% thicker than they were before. It is a noticeable difference. Meredith has pictures in her article, and you can tell. And according to her analysis, and some quotes from Dr. Alan Nathan in her piece, it sounds like it's possible that that may have something to do with the different behavior, the reduced drag on the ball, as well as what seems to be an increased propensity for pitchers to suffer blisters. So I now have an inanimate object to blame for Shohei Otani leaving his start on Wednesday early because of a blister again. So the case may not be completely cracked here, but we have a potential resolution to the mystery of why the ball has been flying differently and why so many pitchers have been getting blisters. And I was messaging with her after the piece came out, and I was saying that I was glad that those baseballs didn't go to waste, and I said that they died heroes, and she said it was more like their bodies were donated to science. Twice, I suppose. So they are disassembled now, but we learned a lot from them. I will link to that article too. And last end note here, listener Noah sent us a picture from Wednesday's Angels game of the big board in the outfield where a Mike Trout fun fact was listed. And it was that Mike Trout is or was on pace to finish the season with 14.5 war. Since 1900, the only position player who has ever had a 14 win season is Babe Ruth in 1923. Something we talked about recently. Not saying we're the only ones who talked about this. Not saying that the Angels video board operator who's in charge of Mike Trout fun facts is definitely an effectively wild listener but if you are if you're out there if you're listening please don't hesitate to get in touch because we can give you mike trout fun facts for days you will never need to think of another mike trout fun fact we've got you covered you can support this podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly amount Nikolai Stoggard Erickson, Dirk Keaton, Craig Cunningham, Michael Fago, and John McGovern. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings and reviews do help us, provided that they're positive ones. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, not only for his editing assistance this time, but also for his guesting assistance. You can find him on Twitter at HigginsFOS. We will very likely do an email show next time. So please do keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We will be back with that episode later this week. Talk to you then. Ooh, 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 life is just a game.